All right, <clears throat> let's go ahead and pray. God, we just thank you tonight for your goodness. We pray that uh, as, you're, as we're opening up your word, that you would just reveal it to us, that your Holy Spirit would um, touch each one of us right now. God, help us to really uh, just grasp what you're trying to say to our hearts and just uh, glorify yourself in our presence tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so um, reading through the Bible in a year, Wednesday nights we do the recap. And, you know, Mariah asked me this morning, she said, Nate, how are you going to teach out of the first 10 chapters of First Chronicles? And I said, luckily, I'm not. I'm teaching out of uh, the last couple chapters in Second Kings. Uh, so, you know, parts of the Bible are, can be a little bit challenging to read through. But as we're doing a Bible overview, um, it's not that it's less inspired. It's not even that it's less relevant, but it is important to understand it in its historical context. So, um, if the first 10 chapters of First Chronicles felt challenging to anybody besides me, um, just understand that overall, the context, First Chronicles most likely was written by uh, Ezra, who we're going to get to his book in just a couple weeks here. Um, as the nation of Judah and all the other Israelites were coming back from captivity in the land of Babylon. So, it feels like just a lot of names, but you have to remember in its context, right, it was the point of anchor for all these people who are coming back to their homeland. So it's not, so, you know, it is challenging and it doesn't ha bear as much direct application to us today, but it's no less inspired. It's no less the word of God. It's no less God breathed. Okay. So that's just kind of encapsulating that. That's the first 10 chapters of First Chronicles. Um, with that being said, that's, uh, that sums up most of First Chronicles pretty well. So, uh, so if we're going to look at overall, what can we glean as a group from the reading of the past week? Um, I want tonight. We're going to specifically look at the life of Josiah. All right. So to give a little bit of context, right? We talked about uh, the nation of Israel had uh, Saul was king, David was king, Solomon was king. After Solomon died, the nation was divided into two groups: the Northern Kingdom was 10 tribes. They kept the name Israel. And the southern kingdom was really, it was mostly just the tribe of Judah. So it was known as Judah. And Israel was just full of bad kings. And they were carried off uh, to the nation of Assyria. Um, Judah was more sporadic, had some good guys, some bad guys. But um, had a, it was about a two-to-one ratio of bad to good. So overall, you know, we get to watch the nation, both nations um, just slide into this state of moral decline. But with Judah, it's almost more like steps, right? It's more like, ah, we got a bright spot, and then we dip. And then we get a bright spot, and then we dip. And, but it's still kind of this downward trend, okay, with a couple notable exceptions. And so one of those exceptions is Hezekiah. And we get to read about the life of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah... Um, just really loved the Lord, really served the Lord, really had a heart to restore worship to the Lord in the nation, right? Not just on a personal level. But we do see, we see a couple of flaws in Hezekiah's life. We see a couple areas of carelessness. Um, you know, he's still a, a fantastic example, but there's some spots where we look and we say, you know, hey, he could have wrapped up a little better. Um, and one of those areas specifically is we look at Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, right? Hezekiah was told he'd have 15 years uh, 
of life added to his lifespan. All right. And within that time frame of 15 years, he had a son born named Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when Hezekiah became, when Hezekiah died and Manasseh became king. And Manasseh is the most wicked king in all of Judah's history. All right. Manasseh, he's also, um, he's either the longest reigning or the second longest reigning king in Judah's history. Um, he reigns, let's see if I can find it here. He reigns 55 years in Jerusalem. So this man has a long, long reign of wickedness. And uh, it's really, it's just, it's just, it was an absolute drive to wipe out the worship of the Lord. And if you're just reading Kings, you'd say, man, that dude was just a loser, right? That dude was just, he wasn't, I mean, that's putting it nicely. That guy was just, he was evil to the max, right? And he was, but when you read in Chronicles, we get an extra little detail. And this is why Kings and Chronicles, we're getting into First Chronicles and then Second Chronicles over the course of the next week or two. Um, it's going to feel a little bit repetitive, right? It's going to be like, I've heard this before. But don't check out just because you've heard it before because both of them were written in specific times for specific groups of people. And so they each have specific dynamics that we can learn from. Um, a lot like the Gospels, right? You don't get to Mark and skip it because you've already read Matthew. You say, what can I glean from this perspective of the life of Christ? So Chronicles is going to tell us a couple extra details about some of the kings of Judah. And one of those details is that Manasseh, in the midst of all his wickedness, got carried off as captive by a foreign nation. And while he's in prison, in captivity, he gets humbled, right? He humbles himself, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord hears and forgives him, right? It's really... uh, Manasseh has one of the most amazing testimonies in the scripture because he gets redemption. You know, so many of the kings of Judah, we see, you know, he was really good, but he didn't end quite right. And Manasseh is really the exception where it's, he was really bad, but he ended standing in the grace of God, right? Manasseh did not start well. Manasseh didn't hit his middle stretch well. Manasseh really didn't do anything well until the end. All right, but when he got to the end, the Lord used that. And so, Second Chronicles thirty-three, just real fast. We're gonna, uh, I want us to just read this to get a picture of it. Um, did I say I did say thirty-three? Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-three, um, starting in verse ten. It says, "The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention." And so, after all of his wickedness, therefore. The Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So then it tells us a couple of things that he did from a construction standpoint. And then verse 15 it says, he also removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. So Manasseh has a rough start, right? But we will get the privilege of meeting Manasseh someday, right? Because he ended well. And, you know, it's that same idea that's so constant through the scriptures is it's not about how we start, right? 
Um, I mean, the Lord would like us to start well, but really he doesn't care nearly as much about how well we start as how do we end. And so Manasseh is a great picture. And we get to see even, you know, if, if you start, sometimes there's the parts in the Bible narrative where it's like, this is super straightforward. And then there's parts where you stop and back up and just piece it together a little bit. You can get a couple extra details. Okay. So Manasseh has a son named Ammon. Ammon is another wicked king, just like his father was before he repented. Ammon reigns for two years and then dies. And then, Manasseh, and then Ammon's son, Josiah, becomes king. Josiah becomes king at the age of eight years old. All right, so if you break down and do a little bit of math, Manasseh lived until Josiah was six years old. All right, so Manasseh dies, Ammon reigns for two years, and then Josiah becomes king at the age of eight. So Manasseh lived until Josiah was six years old. And we don't know the full dynamic, all right? But Ammon was a wicked man who had sold himself to do wickedness. So it's possible, though, and you don't want to over-infer, but in the midst of Manasseh's reforms, in the midst of Manasseh trying to encourage all the people to return to the Lord, Manasseh was probably pretty aware of his son's wickedness, right? And he might have hit a point where he realized, you know what, I have... I have so much of my life has gone into corrupting my son that there's really nothing I can do about it at this point. But he had a grandson, right? And we can't guarantee, but there's every reason to believe that Manasseh spent those six years he had with Josiah pouring into him, right? Trying to salvage everything. And, and here's the cool thing too, is the Lord uses this, all right? We're going to get here in just a second. But never underestimate in our lives or in the lives of anybody we might meet, Never underestimate the Lord's ability to compound redemption, right? Manasseh reigns for 55 years. Um, at least, I mean, it doesn't give us exact dates, but the vast majority of that was stored up in wickedness. And he gets a slice right at the end where he gets to be godly, okay? And it doesn't undo what happened. It doesn't reverse the sin, all right? But we get to watch. We're going to see here those six years bore fruit, right? And in the book of Joel, the Lord's talking about restoring the people. And he says, I'll restore the years the locusts have eaten. And he's talking about, I'm not just, I'm not just going to like bring you to a point of new, you know, he doesn't just wipe the slate clean. He can also use all of the bad, all of the waste in our lives, right? The Lord is capable in his power to take every mistake we've ever made and not just forgive them, Okay, which he does, but to then also use them for his glory, right? And that is, that's, that's almost one of the most powerful truths of the entire gospel. It's not just that we can be forgiven, it's that we can be forgiven and that everything we've done can somehow be brought under the banner of God's glory because the love of Christ is so sufficient. The power of God is so all-encompassing that he can restore, right? He doesn't just start fresh. because He does start fresh, okay? I'm not taken away from that. But he's also able to restore, right? To, to use the wasted years. And he's able to recycle those for his kingdom. So for whatever, so somehow or another, Manasseh is able to look at all of his wasted years and put that same energy that he put into defying the Lord into pouring into trying to serve the Lord, right? And trying to pass on a godly legacy. So with that, if you would, turn to uh, 2 Kings chapter 22. And in 2 Kings chapter 22, starting in verse 1, it says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. 
and his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David. Nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. So most places in the Bible, when we read about the kings of Judah, if it's a good king, it'll say, he did right in the sight of the Lord, nevertheless, or but, right? But with Josiah, what we get is, he did right in the sight of the Lord, he walked in all the ways of David, and he did not turn aside to the right or the left. And this is the reputation of an eight-year-old, right? And so, the, you know, never underestimate the power of the gospel at any stage in life, right? The gospel is not limited by age. It's not limited by, by economic status. It's not limited by your ethnic status, right? And, and these are things that we say as Christians because we're supposed to say them. But it's easy sometimes to forget the, the absolute reality of these things, right? The absolute truth that in Christ, we are all part of the kingdom of God. So Josiah becomes king. Now, verse three, in the 18th year of King Josiah, so he reigns for 31 years. Um, so part of that is growing up and some of those kind of things. Um, but in his 18th year of his reign, either of his reign or of his life, we're not sure which, says the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord. So he sends him to the, sends him to the temple. And he says, verse 4, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. Let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of the Lord to repair the damages of the house, to the carpenters and the builders and the masons, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands, for they deal faithfully. So Josiah, he's a young guy. He's got a heart for the Lord. He's not turning aside. He says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to rebuild the temple, right? We're not just going to tell people to worship the Lord. We're going to provide them with the opportunity and the place to worship the Lord. So he puts together his team. He says, okay, you guys go talk to this guy. We're going to organize the money this way. You know, you pay him. Make sure we get structure here. And we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to establish this for the sake of the Lord. And then verse 8, it says, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I've found the book of the law in the house of the Lord, right? Hey, I found the Bible, right? And I mean, that, that was, that's the moral condition that, it, that Judah is in at this point. When the high priest, right, the spiritual leader of the country says, you're not gonna believe what I just found. I just found the Bible, right? I just found the book of the law of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Verse 12, Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Josiah gets read the Bible for the very first time, right? He had had a heart to serve the Lord and we're told that he was serving the Lord faithfully, but he was not grounded in the word of God. And when he starts reading the word of God, he realizes, Oh, this is bigger than I thought. 
right? This is more real than I was anticipating. And oh, by the way, it, you know, I don't have to go very far back in my memory to realize that our nation is messed up, right? Our nation has invited the judgment of God upon it, right? So Josiah says, okay, we need to figure out what the Lord, well, where we're at with this, right? What's going to happen? Is this like, you know, how do we respond when we recognize that we have invited the, the judgment of God upon our nation? How do we respond? And so in verse 14, it says, So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Holda the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Those are a lot of details. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. She said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands, therefore my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place." So they brought back word to the Lord. So, so try and wrap your head around this for a second, all right? Josiah hears the word of the law. He recognizes uh, as a nation, we're toast. We're sunk, right? We have done everything that God said not to do. Everything that God said, if you do this, I will have to judge you. We have done that, right? We have thrown this in God's face, not for years, for decades, Right? Not even at that point, more for like for generations. So what do we do? All right? So he goes to the Lord. And the Lord, this is really interesting because the Lord almost never um, gives this much info to a person in the Bible. The Lord gives them two details that are really, really critical. He says, number one, judgment is going to come. He says, it's absolutely going to come. Um, you know, we talked about the Lord can restore anything, but the Bible specifically refers to because of the sins of Manasseh. Right? Manasseh was a turning point in Israel's sin. So he says, because of the sins of Manasseh, because he so forcefully turned the hearts of the people away from me, judgment is going to come. You can't stop it, Josiah. But because you've humbled yourself, here's point number two. Because you've humbled yourself, because you repented on a personal level, judgment is not going to come in your lifetime. You're going to die in peace. Right? You're going to die before Judah is conquered. So, so practice in your brain for a second. The Lord says, there's nothing you can do to change this, but you've already done enough to not face this in your lifetime. Okay? So really what the Lord is saying is, it's going to come, but you've already logged your hours. You're safe. Right? Now, if, if I knew that I couldn't change the outcome, but I've already done enough to take care of myself, right? To make sure that I'm, that I'm covered, right? I'm going to die in peace and I can't change the outcome. What's the response 
right? What, what's the, what's the, what's the, what would be the natural response, right? Well, if you're covered, you're covered. You can't change the outcome anyways, right? Don't, don't sweat details that you can't fix, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if it's broken, you can't fix it, leave it alone, okay? I mean, that, that'd be our natural inclination, right? So what does Josiah do? He gets this word from the Lord. He, the Lord tells him, you're fine. You're covered, but I'm going to bring judgment. So in chapter 23, starting in verse 1, we're going to read uh, most of 23 here all in one pop, but um, we might take a break. We'll see. Verse 1, then the king sent and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people entered into the covenant. So Josiah takes, he gets all the people together and he says, look, here's what's happening. Here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to commit to serving the Lord together. Right? Josiah... He's got a killer opportunity to spend the rest of his life in self-focused apathy. Apathy. Josiah has the chance to kick back and take it easy, but he doesn't. He's going to say, let's serve the Lord together. And then verse 4, then the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priest of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that had been made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priest whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the surrounding areas of Jerusalem. Also, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and to all the hosts of heaven. He brought out the Asherah, that's an idol, from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. He also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord, where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. Then he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on the left at the city's gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. He also defiled Topheth, which is a, uh, it was a place, it was like a place of worship, idol worship, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Moloch. He did away with the horses, which the king of Judah had given to the son at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the official, which was in the precincts, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. So these are horses and chariots that have been dedicated to the sun, right? They've been dedicated for idol worship. And horses and chariots, you understand, that's military might. In an era when Judah is in a weak position militarily, okay? World powers are just coming up right and left, all right? This would be like, this would be like being Poland right before World War II, Right? You've got Soviet Russia on one side, and you've got Nazi Germany on the other side, and you say, I've got an idea. Let's get rid of all our tanks. 
because they've been dedicated to an idol, right? I mean, this is what, he, this is what Josiah is doing. And then um, verse 12, the altars which were on the roof, the upper chambers of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down and he smashed them there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. The high places which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right of the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the sons of Ammon, the king defiled. So pause right there. Well, no, don't pause right there. One more verse. He broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with human bones. He destroys the idols that Solomon put up. All right? Now bear in mind, think of all the kings... You know, we said there are a lot of bad kings, but there are a lot of good kings. Think of all the good kings that came between Solomon and Josiah, right? You had Jehoshaphat, you had Uzziah, you had Asa, you had Hezekiah, you had Jotham. There's this whole list of guys that came and went, and they left these because these were national monuments, right? These were relics. These were whatever they were. Josiah says, I don't care what they are. He says, these are idols. We're going to get rid of these things. And bear in mind, why is Josiah doing this? Josiah can't change anything, right? The Lord, and keep this in mind, the Lord told this to Josiah before he went on this, on this role, okay? This is not Josiah trying to earn points in the hopes it'll change the Lord's mind. This is Josiah knowing the will of the Lord, but choosing instead, not instead, but choosing as part of that to decide that his life it's not just going to be about himself. His life is going to be about pursuing the glory of God and trying to encourage others to do the same thing. All right? And so um, we'll read just a little more here. Um, start, if you kick over to verse 21 of chapter 23, it says, Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. So this says that a Passover like this hadn't been held since the time of the judges, right? So now you're talking about he's doing things that David never got around to doing, okay? Things that didn't happen since the time of Samuel and earlier, right? Josiah is resolved and determined that he's going to serve the Lord. All right, but it, keeps, it goes on. Moreover, verse 24, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. <clears throat> Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So this is the Bible's commentary on Josiah. You know, every once in a while, the Bible gives us commentary on its own characters. And right here, it says, Josiah beat out every other king in all of the history of Israel and Judah. And there's a lot of kings in the history of Israel and Judah. And the Bible pauses to make sure we understand that Josiah served the Lord more fully than any of them. But verse 26, this is important. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah from my sight 
as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. So, Josiah does all this stuff, right? And again, we said he's not doing it to change God's mind because God's mind is not changed here, right? The Lord says, that's great, Josiah. Good for you. You're the best king in all of biblical history. But there's still judgment coming, right? There's still consequences because sin can be forgiven, but there are still consequences to our actions, right? And, and we're not saved by our works, but we can do things to invite the blessing of God into our life. And we can do things to invite the judgment of God into our life, right? And so the nation of Judah has invited the judgment of God for so long that the Lord says, what Josiah did was amazing, but there's still judgment coming, right? But there's judgment coming on the nation. And if there's one thing that we've been stressing really throughout these last couple months, okay, it's that nations move, right? There's pulses and flows to nations and, and things come and things go, all right? But the Lord is always focused on the individual. He works with nations. He uses them. He moves them. He shapes them. All right. But the Lord is focused on the individual. And so as we're looking at the character of Josiah, um, when you read about somebody who serves the Lord like that, it takes my mind over to Hebrews chapter 11. And we get a couple other examples here that I think are important um, of kind of the same idea of somebody who had that shot to take it easy and just soak up whatever they could, and chose not to. So in Hebrews 11, verse 24, uh, the author of Hebrews is going through different examples of faith in the Old Testament. And he says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." right? That is the defining point, right? Josiah was not looking to what happens between now and when I die. Josiah was looking to the reward. Moses had a chance to be a uh, son of Pharaoh, all right? Son of the richest man in the world, if not one of the richest men in all of world history. Moses had that chance, Right? And he totally could have. But he chose not to. Why? Because he chose to rather endure ill treatment with the people of God. He got the privilege of walking around the desert for 40 years listening to people tell him that they did not like him. Right? For 40 years. Four decades. Right? Moses got that privilege rather than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. Why? Because he was looking to the reward. Okay, so we have to understand this, and we see the same idea um, with John the Baptist. All right, John the Baptist stands up and publicly tells the people what Herod just did right there, what your king did. Uh, I forget however he did it. Either he married a stepsister or divorced, uh, he did some crazy weird thing that doesn't work out. Um, he said, That's sin. All right? And he was willing to stand up publicly and say, that's sin, knowing that he was going to provoke the wrath of that king. And that his wrath was provoked. John was put in prison. John's eventually beheaded because he was willing to take a stand on the truth. But when Jesus offers his commentary on John, kind of like the commentary on Josiah, Jesus says, 
among those who were born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist, right? And that'd be, that would look pretty good on your tombstone, right? Like there was no one greater, Jesus, right? Like that's, that's, that's not a passing statement, okay? Jesus says John was the greatest human being other than Jesus himself to ever live. And John got the privilege of getting his head chopped off in solitary confinement in a dungeon, right? So what's the point here? Because for each of us, right, we have the same question. What's going to happen? And honestly, I think this is super relevant to us today because candidly, as a nation, all right, as Americans, I think our time is short, okay? If you want to look at historically, uh, when nations rise to power, they typically last for about 250 years, almost universally, okay? You can almost set your clock by it, all right? The prime strength of almost every ancient nation is about 250 years, all right? Uh, So just mathematically, by historical odds, America is nearing the end of its prime. Uh, Financially, it's it's not a partisan statement because Everybody in D.C. is horrible uh, stewards of money, right? Our nation is spending money so fast that it can't possibly repay that we are drowning ourselves in debt to the point that computer models now of how we'll pay for things are crashing, okay? Uh, There's at least a couple, there's at least one computer model of where the debt ceiling is going that crashes in 2035, because it just is like the computer blows up. Like it can't, it can't go farther, right? Now, I don't know for sure if it's going to happen at 2035 or whatever. Okay, but understand this. Short of a, short of a miracle, America is financially going to uh, bankrupt itself into poverty. All right? And that's just financially. Morally, right? You think about the sins of Manasseh, right? God said the sins of Manasseh, encouraging the people to sin. That's, a, that's bringing a judgment that I will have to deal with, all right? And you think about our country right now. You know, I mean, how long was Manasseh in power? 55 years? Okay. You think about the last 55 years of morality in America, right? What have we done? We have invited the judgment of God on our country, right? We have, right? We slaughter babies wholesale and then sell their body parts, Right? We tell people that you can defy biology, you can defy reality, and you can do whatever you want with your body. We tell, we tell people you can corrupt your body at the age of eight years old if you want to, because we're going to refuse to tell you the truth in the name of supporting you. Right? We've institutionalized a system of education that tells children that they have no value, they have no meaning, and there are no boundaries. And so when you take a society of people who believe they have no meaning and no boundaries, and then we all of a sudden we act surprised that there's no value for human life, right? We have invited the judgment of God on our country. And I'll be honest, short of an absolute national revival, and even if that were to come, I think the judgment of God is still going to come on this country. And you can say that's unpatriotic. You can say whatever you want to say, right? But I think, candidly, it's biblical. I think... That's the way the Lord works. And so for each one of us, we can hit this point of, you know what? I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm covered. I'm going to heaven, right? Let America do what America wants to do. I'm going to be out of here, right? But that's not the answer, right? The answer is not to check out spiritually to say, well, just, you know, let them go where they want, right? The answer is not to just assume 
that, okay, this is it, so whatever, just get, you know, get my stuff and get out of here, right? What's the answer? Well, okay, as, as we've looked now at Josiah and John the Baptist and Moses, all right? And, you know, we don't have time, just like he says in Hebrews. He says, time would fail me. I don't have time to tell you about each one of these guys tonight, all right? But they all pursued the Lord in faith because they were looking to the reward. So chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right? We have the testimony of Josiah and John and Moses. We have the testimony of all the judges like Samson and Gideon and Barak. We have the testimony of David and Abraham and Noah, right? We have all of these guys, all these gals throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, who were pursuing the reward. He says, therefore, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, in case you need another, one more example of pursuing the reward, right? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? That's, that's why Josiah was doing that. Right? Josiah wasn't doing it just because. Josiah wasn't doing it to make life on earth more comfortable. Josiah was looking ahead. Right? Moses was looking ahead. Noah was looking ahead. These guys were not just trying to see what can I do to make life here comfortable. They were looking ahead. And the author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we've seen all of them, let's look ahead too. And let's not forget what we're looking ahead to. Let's not forget who we're looking ahead to, right? We're not looking ahead towards my comfort in heaven, towards I want to have salvation. We're looking ahead to, I want to see Jesus, right? I want to see Jesus. And so I want to run this race with endurance, just like Josiah did, right? Josiah had that privilege of being titled the most godly king in all of history, in all of Judah and Israel's history. John the Baptist had that privilege of being titled the greatest man in all time. And yet even in that, we can have the same title because we can all be brought into the family of God. Right? Where Paul says there isn't Jew or Greek, there isn't slave or free. We're all one in Christ. So it's not like, oh, I can never compare to him, so why bother? It's, I have access to the exact same reward. I've been given the exact same privilege and the exact same opportunity. So let's not waste that. Right? Let's just, and you know, for each one of us, we have to ask on a personal level, okay, God, how do I respond to the words of your law? Right? Josiah had to take the words of God and say, okay, now how do I respond? And each one of us is going to have to take the word of God in our own life and say, how do I respond? Right? Because our goal is to run with endurance, to lay aside the sins that trip us up and the weights, right? The things that might not be sin, but they are sure not helping us, right? We get to lay all that aside. Why? Because we are looking unto Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who starts our race, and he's the one who can help us, just like Manasseh, just like Josiah, just like all the other guys, he's the one who can help us finish well. That's what the Lord wants to do in each one of our hearts, right? That's what he wants to do through his word, 
That's why we're gathered here tonight, because we want to see him do that work in our hearts. So let's live that. Let's take that as a privilege to then run with, right? So, Lord, we just, we pray for that, God. We, we recognize that, that you want to do a work in each of our hearts. God, we, um, we want to see your spirit move in our lives. We want to see your word impact us. God, we want our focus to not be on this life. We don't want our focus to be on, uh, on ourselves. We want our focus to be on Jesus Christ. God, we want to see the resurrected King in all of his glory. And so I pray that you would just fixate our hearts on that. God, I do pray uh, for our nation. God, we, we are inviting your judgment. Uh, God, it, it's, it would almost be... Uh, it would almost be insulting to ask for forgiveness, and yet we do, God. We, we come with that, uh, that awareness of where we've fallen short, and we do ask for, uh, for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We pray for revival, God. We pray for a stirring and an awakening of hearts. Right? We pray that, that it would ripple out through each one of us, through every church in this country, that you would turn hearts towards your word. God, we pray that you would just stir up people, stir up your people with boldness. God, send out laborers into the harvest. You told us to pray that you would send laborers. And so we are praying right now, God, that you would send us as laborers into the harvest. God, we pray that, that in our life that we would get the privilege of watching you move in a way that we can't even imagine or fathom. But I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that your word would be exalted and given great respect. I pray that, that the hearts and the lives and uh, in this church and in this community and in this country and in this world would just recognize Jesus Christ, would recognize the power of the gospel. God, do that work in our hearts and just glorify yourself among us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.